Part 2, Chapter 6 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Eden Walker. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Sieve. I was spending a few days at the spacious farmhouse that nestles under the shadow of Saddle Hill. It was getting towards evening. The boys had one by one sauntered in from the stables and the fields. The girls had returned from the byre. It was past tea time, yet the evening meal stood untasted on the vast kitchen table. The snowy cloth was temptingly spread. Piles of white scones and crisp oat cakes tantalized the appetite. The kettle sang merrily on the hob, and yet we waited. For my good hostess, the farmer's wife, had gone to town for a day's shopping and had not yet returned. If she catches the 5.20, she'll be home in ten minutes, pleaded Jean with a coaxing glance at her hungry brothers. Let's wait till then. And sure enough, in a few minutes, there was a sound of wheels, and the good woman came bustling in with her parcels. The daughters of the farm withdrew to their mother's room, primarily, of course, to help her off with her hat and coat, and just incidentally to have a peep at her purchases. And then, to the undisguised satisfaction of the boys, the family circle was complete, and the meal began. All went merrily until, in the very midst of our festivity, the chink of cups and the hum of conversation were suddenly interrupted by my hostess. In an answer to a question from Bella, she threw herself back in her chair, lifted her hands in a gesture of amazement, and exclaimed, Why, I do declare I forgot the very thing I went for. Oh, dear, oh, dear, I've got a head like a sieve. Now, I spent so many delightful days under her hospitable roof that I am reluctant to subject her utterance to public criticism, and yet I cannot allow her unhappy metaphor to pass unchallenged. A memory like a sieve, indeed. No simile could be more false to fact. It is the essential property of a sieve to allow the fine sand to escape whilst retaining the larger nuggets. But did she not herself tell us that it was the important thing, the very thing she went for, that slipped her memory? That is characteristic of the memory. It is very rarely like a sieve. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, it is the big things that elude it, whilst a conglomeration of trifles remains. In one of his soliloquies, the poet at the breakfast table tells how, an old man now, he distinctly remembers being cheated out of a sixpence by an old strawberry woman at an English fair fifty years ago. Yet a hundred matters of really first-class importance have failed during that half-century to make any lasting impression on his memory. What an odd thing memory is, he exclaims in telling the tale. 
to have kept such a triviality and to have lost so much that was invaluable she's a crazy wench that mnemosyne she throws her jewels out of the window and locks up straws and old rags in her strong-box a man remembers the first fish he ever caught long after many of the more vital events in his career have faded from his mind with perfect clearness he will recall to his dying day the shining scaly trout flapping in its death flurry on the bank under the willows the winning hit that a man once made for the school eleven lingers in his thoughts long after the twists and turns of his later history have passed into the obscurity of forgetfulness the thrill of that glorious moment will rush back upon him in his last illness these are the happenings that haunt the memory perhaps the apparent discrepancy is due to our false estimate of things it is possible that the memory has a truer sense of proportion a more just perspective than we are wont to suppose an artist does not select his subject because of its commercial value or historic importance a rustic cottage may be much more attractive to his brush than a king's palace a parliamentary building or a stock exchange memory claims to be allowed to judge things as the artist does by standards of her own i was talking one day to a friend of mine who a few years ago lost his sight he was telling me that he remembers with singular vividness a walk that he once took from his native town in england to a neighboring village he was sent by his father with a most important message but he has forgotten now what the message was he only remembers a squirrel that he saw perched in a beech tree down the lane along which his journey took him now my blind friend would at the time have regarded the business that took him along the lane as of very much greater moment than the squirrel he saw perched saucily in the beech tree but the memory has tossed to the scrap heap the mission on which he travelled whilst he sees the squirrel to-day as clearly as he saw it thirty years ago and on the whole he is convinced that memory is right the squirrel is the thing that is best worth remembering as i sit scribbling on this australian veranda and i think of my own childhood on the other side of the world i find that the things that most easily rush back upon me are not the important things i remember oh how clearly i remember my first circus i went up to the top of our street in the dinner hour to see it enter the town the elephants the camels the cages of wild beasts and the huge triumphal cars on one at a height that made me dizzy as i looked up sat britannia attended by a bevy of beautiful princesses on another sat a haughty conqueror surrounded by his officers and followed by his slaves here in the procession rode red indians in full war-paint with moccasins and bowie-knives 
There were men of all kinds and colors. How could I ever forget the wonder of that tremendous moment? And then there was the day when, a small boy, I went to school as usual and was told on arrival that Mr. Farncombe, the old schoolmaster, was dead. Would I like to see him? I was afraid and did not like to say so. At last stammered feebly a reluctant consent and was led with half a dozen other shrinking and terror-stricken youngsters past the coffin in which our old schoolmaster lay so frightfully stiff and still. Can I ever forget that weird uncanny moment? Or the strange unearthly dreams of the night that followed? And then there was a day when there was some little commotion in the house. I forget what it was all about. I know that my mother was ill in bed and sent to know the cause of all the hubbub. As a result, I remember that I was hailed before her, charged with having done something or other of which, as it happened, I was entirely innocent. And did you do it? my mother asked, looking up from her pillows. No, mother, I answered. Then that's the end of it, she said to the nurse who had me in charge. If he says he didn't, he didn't. I was set at liberty and scampered away feeling that my mother was the sweetest creature that ever breathed and thinking what a horrid thing it would be to deceive her. These are the things that the memory treasures. They do not seem to be the critical hours of a man's experience, the pivotal points on which his career turned. Life would have gone on in pretty much the same way if these things had never happened. And yet it may be, as I have suggested, that the memory has a more just standard of values than we sometimes think. Let me look at these things again. The day on which I saw the circus was the day on which a world consciousness was born within my soul. I had read of elephants that crashed through African forests, and of camels that crossed Arabian deserts, and of tigers that haunted the jungles of Bengal. I had heard of conquering heroes, of tattooed savages, of feathered Indians, and of woolly-headed slaves. But here they all were. I was too excited to reflect that it was largely a matter of dye and drapery. To me, it was the world. All the continents and islands had suddenly swept into my soul. In bewildering and overpowering pageantry, they burst upon me all in a moment. And my memory treasures not the objective cause which was trifling, but the subjective effect which was tremendous. And that ghostly scene at the old school, my memory clings to it as the occasion on which death and I first looked into each other's faces. 
and the incident in my mother's bedroom, it was the hour in which I learned the meaning of faith. My mother trusted me, believed me implicitly, and life seemed a greater, holier thing in consequence. Is it not possible that memory discriminates with extraordinary insight and wisdom? She knows what to hoard up and what to throw away. Like the artist, she has her own standard of values, and the more we examine that standard, the more we shall admire it. The little things she treasures so jealously are, more often than not, the biggest things in life after all. Moreover, there is this to be said. The memory not only knows what to keep, but having kept it, she knows where to find it and how to use it when the occasion at length arises. In It Is Never Too Late to Mend, Charles Reed tells how a party of miners belonging to the gold diggings in New South Wales went for a stroll one Sunday and came upon a settlement of a new immigrant who had brought out with him from England a caged lark. The savage men gathered round the cage, but the bird was strangely silent. And then the same sun that had warmed his little heart at home came glowing down on him here, and he gave music back for it more and more, till at last, amidst the breathless silence and the glistening eyes of the rough diggers, hanging on his voice, outburst in this distant land his English song. Sometimes when he paused, a loud sigh from many a rough bosom, many a wild and wicked heart, told how tight the listeners had held their breath to hear him. And when he swelled with song again, he seemed to every one of those rough men to be singing of the green meadows the quiet brooks, the honey clover, and the English spring. Shaggy lips trembled, and more than one drop trickled from fierce unbridled hearts down bronzed and rugged cheeks, for these shaggy men, full of oaths and strifes and cupidity, had strolled about the English fields with sisters and brothers had seen the lark rise and had heard him sing this very song. Those old playmates lay in the churchyard, whilst they themselves were full of oaths and drink and lusts and remorses. But in this immortal song no note was changed. And so, for a moment or two, years of vice rolled away like a dark cloud from the memory and the past shone out in the song shine. They came back, bright as the deathless notes that lighted them, those faded pictures and those fleeted days, the cottage, the old mother's tears when he left her without one grain of sorrow, the village church and its simple chimes the clover field hard by in which he lay and gambled while the lark praised God overhead, the chubby playmates that never grew to be wicked, the sweet hours of youth and innocence and 
home. When the treasure was stored away in the casket of memory, it was only the trill of a lark in the English fields, but, like pence that had been magically transformed into pounds, it became invested by the passing years with a deep significance and a spiritual value. Many of the really fundamental events in the lives of these Australian diggers the memory had tossed away. She had kept no record of them, but she had carefully treasured up the song of the lark and the vision of the English fields, and she knew why. Her discrimination is almost infallible. I wonder if any such thought entered into the mind of the great teacher when he spoke of laying up for ourselves treasures that no moth can corrupt that no rust can defile, and that no thief can break through and steal. End of Part 2, Chapter 6 Recording by Rebecca Eden Walker